God bless you, kids. So I've got bad news for us just for this morning. Um, our Wi-Fi is down, and uh, we've done a lot to fix, try to fix it, but it's not. I know anybody under 18 already knows that. You, as soon as you came in the parking lot, you know, the Wi-Fi is down. What do you know? And anybody over 50 is like, why what? Why? Why? So just know we're working on it, and uh, it'll be done hopefully for next Sunday, but I, my apologies uh, that it's down. Um, so I want to start with a question this morning. Where are your roots? Where are your roots? Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says this. It says, so then, just as you received Jesus Christ as Lord... Continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Continue to be rooted in Christ, to be in him. Healthy roots are essential to healthy living, aren't they? God created the family as the place where we discover our roots. Not just our biological roots, but our spiritual roots. We all have biological roots. My immediate family, my whole family tree. It's important for me to know where my ancestors came from, how they got here, what brought them here. It's important for us to know their mistakes and their victories because that's part of who we are, our ancestors. It shapes who we are. But it's also in our families where we learn our spiritual roots. So it's no surprise that we have entire cultures that are dominated by particular religious ways of thinking. Uh, China is known for Buddhism, right? The Chinese culture. The Indian culture is known for Hinduism. Middle East, you think Islam. Western civilization, very influenced by Christianity. Now, I'm not suggesting that all of those are equal schools of thought, just suggesting that rightly or wrongly, our family heritage, it, it, it influences our spiritual beliefs. Our roots influence our beliefs. The families where all that kind of forms and shapes in a person. So given the high value of family, can you imagine what our world would be like without family? I've been trying to do that lately, just as I've been preparing for this morning, trying to imagine, sometimes my mind does this, well, what would our world look like if there really was no family, if God had never created families, if we're just a bunch of individuals with no roots at all, each person just pops up, and then disappears, and there's no connection. It's hard to imagine what that would look like. It's safe to assume that if that were the case, we would have self-destructed as a human race a long, long time ago. The family provides so much to us as people. I just can't imagine what life would look like without family, without any roots, so when God commanded Adam and Eve to care for the garden, he was essentially commanding them to care for their home, to care for their family. And they allowed the devil 
to slide right into the very center of their home and to tempt them into sin. The devil is working overtime to destroy the world from the inside of the family out. The greatest threat to our world is not what's happening outside of our homes. It's what's happening inside our homes. We're being destroyed, literally, from the inside out. And that is why God has placed the seventh commandment in the Ten Commands. I want to give a parental warning before I go any further. I need to let you know about today's message, moms and dads. We're going to be talking about the seventh commandment, which is do not commit adultery. I promise you that I'm going to teach this subject with grace in class. I've worked really hard to slay the hillbilly in preparation for this morning and am married to my notes today in order to do that. So I promise you uh, that that's... That's my promise to you, but I understand if parents are concerned, certainly want to let you know. Personally, my own opinion would be use this as a discussion starter. Today is the Sabbath. We've talked about that a month or so ago. Use this as a chance to go home and Sabbath together and have a great conversation about this, moms and dads. But it's up to you. It's totally in your court. We've taken the last two weeks off from our study on the Ten Commandments uh, because we had Palm Sunday and we had Easter Sunday, and those were wonderful, weren't they? So this morning now we get back into the Seventh Commandment. God is called the Wonderful Counselor because God gives wonderful counsel. God wants to protect us from the worst, and he wants to provide for us the very best. These Ten Commandments that we've been talking about, they're not meant to steal your joy. They're meant to increase your joy. God is saying to us, hey, here's the best way to live life. So he began with the first three commands. Let's just review them quickly. The first three commands have to do with our relationship to him. He says, let's get that relationship straight first. We've got to rightly relate to God before we can rightly relate to the rest of our world. So the first three commands pertain to that. The fourth command has to do with our relationship to work. You think about how much time we spend working. That's no wonder it made the top ten list. Work is a huge part of our lives. And God says, hey, here's part of work. I want you one day a week to rest. Take one day a week to Sabbath to worship, to rest, to enjoy your family, to enjoy me one day a week. It's a good thing. And then starting with the fifth commandment, God began to deal with, begins to deal with our relationships to other people. And he starts with the primary relationship, the one that we have with our moms and dads, your parents. Honor your parents. And then the second, this next one, the sixth command, has to do with how we relate to other people, the priceless nature of human life. God says, do not commit murder. There's literally nothing else like you on this planet. You have the image of God stamped on you, and you are filled with the breath of God. And that's what makes murder so wrong. It's, it, it, the sixth command deals with the high, 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 supreme value of human life. 
And now we come to the seventh commandment, which happened dealing with adultery. And I believe that God intended to place this one next. There's an order that God is putting these in. After addressing the high value of our parents and then the high value of life, human life in general, God deals with the high value of family life by dealing with the one thing that threatens family life the most, adultery. Isn't it interesting that the very thing basic to building a family is also used to destroy it? Sexual intimacy is given to us to bond a husband and a wife together, sealing their relationship forever, to create children, to build a family, and to represent the relationship that God wants to have with each individual person. Adultery undermines all three of those things. It seeks to attack the very thing that God created to be good. Adultery is an enemy to your home and to mine. This seventh command is given to us to protect the intimate union between a husband and a wife. God is not a prude. He has given intercourse as a gift. And when it's properly enjoyed, it blesses a marriage. It strengthens a home. It creates a foundation that future generations can be built upon. So given the greatness of this gift, we've got to understand that there are some profound consequences for misusing it. One, uh, one author put it this way, from the best gifts come the worst miseries if we're too foolish to follow the giver's instructions. I liked that. Far too many precious people have gone to bed with a lie and woken up with regret. The Bible's quite clear about God's intentions for this gift. But we get a super condensed version in the Ten Commandments. God simply says this, you shall not commit adultery. That's pretty clear, black and white. Don't do it. But let's expound on that. Let's explain what it is. Adultery, the definition would be this. It's any sex other than consensual sex between a married man and a woman. Anything else has fallen short of God's perfect plan. Notice the word consensual. Rape is not consensual. Rape is not sex. It's violence. And it's never right. And I just want to just a moment. If you're a victim of rape, you understand the violation that comes with it. You're a survivor. You're not an accomplice. And I want you to know that God's heart breaks with yours and he's able to help you to rebuild. I just want to make it clear that we're not talking about that this morning. We're talking about adultery. What is God's plan for sex? Why did he create us this way? He could have made us without this. Why did he put this powerful desire within us? Three reasons. Understanding the three reasons really helps us to understand why God says not to commit adultery. That's why we're going through this, please. That's, um, that's the reason for this. The first one is this, intimate union. That's the first reason for it. 
The scene is Genesis chapter 2. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 to 24. It's the very, in my Bible, it's literally page 2. So it's not too difficult to find, the second page of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 to 24. It says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the scene of the very first wedding night. Think about Adam is alone. The only one the only human being on the planet. There's no other one. Adam felt that loneliness. He felt that emptiness. It was palpable to Adam. He sees all of other, God's other creation. They're all, they're all coupled up. And Adam, nothing. And so God even sees Adam alone and he says, it's not good for him to be alone. And so God put Adam to sleep, and he created woman from Adam. He literally took a piece out of Adam to create woman. One commentator says it this way, that Eve was not taken from Adam's feet, placing her beneath Adam. Eve was not taken from Adam's head, placing her above Adam. Eve was taken from Adam's side placing her next to Adam. God's intention was that man and woman complement one another. We're two halves of the same coin. In verse 23, Adam wakes up and he sees her for the first time. I suggest to you that Adam was breathless when he saw Eve for the very first time. And I would also suggest to you that if you live the way that God intended, that same breathless encounter awaits every newly married couple on their wedding night. Your wedding night's supposed to take your breath away. But if it's a night like many other nights, then it's just one of many, and that's not the way that God intended it to be. The only person who has the right to take your breath away, is your spouse. In reading these words, you get the sense that there was a delight that Adam and Eve had in one another's bodies. 
Adam says, this is flesh of my flesh. It's bone, bone of my bone. There's a sense of discovery. They're seeing one another for the first time. They, they realized we're actually made to fit each other. Verse 24 says that the two become one flesh. Don't miss this. What began with Adam losing a piece culminated with the two becoming one. See, it's intended to glue a couple together. It's intended to bring man and woman together because it's only when the two come together that we're one again, if you will. The idea of the two becoming one body is found numerous times in the Bible. And in the same way that I cannot repeatedly rip off my arm and put it back on again without doing damage to myself, someone who repeatedly unites himself with multiple partners is doing great damage to themselves and to their partners. I'm together ripping, together ripping, together ripping. God gave us this gift to create intimate union with our one true love for life. He didn't give it to us to share with anyone that we might have feelings for. So that's the first reason why we have it. The second reason why we have this is simply procreation. It's an obvious one, but we have to address it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God commanded the first couple to be fruitful and to increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Childbirth is such a miracle, isn't it? It's remarkable to consider how human life begins. It is marvelous how two single cells come together and a human being is birthed out of that. It's, it's remarkable. And while it's not the only purpose of, of intercourse, it certainly is one purpose of it. God could have created us to procreate like a flower, where we just stay in our spot and we wait for a bee to come and carry our pollen to another flower. He could have done that, but he didn't. God created us this way. Why? I think in part he created us for community. He created us for intimacy. He created the marriage union to be this picture of, of the greatest relationship that's available to every single human being. You know what that is? The greatest relationship available to every human being is an intimate relationship with God himself. And that leads us to the third purpose for this union. It's a living illustration. The Bible tells us that this is a very mysterious union that we're talking about. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 32, after talking about husband and wife becoming one flesh, that's the text, it says this, this is a profound mystery. Not a regular mystery. It's a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church, it says. Somehow, it's a mystery. But somehow, this union between husband and wife is a picture of the union between Jesus and the church. And now we understand why adultery is so abhorrent because Jesus doesn't cheat on his girl. This is why any sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is wrong. Because 
the wife is a picture of the church. And the husband is the picture of Christ. And the two coming together is a picture of the intimacy and the forever commitment that Jesus desires to have with each one of us. There's just no such thing as casual sex. It's a lie. Jesus does not jump in and out of relationships. He commits himself forever, and he dies for his beloved. That's, that's the standard that we're held to. And our marriages and our bedrooms are supposed to be a picture of this, which gives it a supreme value. Adultery is so wrong because marriage is so valuable. There's literally nothing else like it in all of creation. And as a culture, we've done our best to separate sex from marriage. So you see the Bible God created them together. We, in our sin, have ripped them apart. And so, in ripping them apart, we have to justify that. We have to justify why we do that before the God of the universe. And so the way that we justify that is we say, well, sex is not for marriage. Sex is for people who love each other. And see, when you water it down to just two people that love each other, and now it's getting even more watered down to we don't even need to love each other. We're just two people that consent. If you think about it, we've gone even further than we were just a few years ago. When you water it down to just two people who love each other, now, now you've opened it up. So now two, two men who love each other is okay. Two women who love each other is okay. Uh, it doesn't really matter because sex is about love, So as long as you love each other, you're good. But that's not the biblical standard. I got two thoughts on this. The whole, but we love each other argument. Two responses. The first response is this. Love does what is best for others. Let's not confuse what love is. Love is not that passionate feeling. We, we, we think it is. We think love is that passionate feeling. Oh, the, the, that's not love. That's a passionate feeling. And passionate feelings are wonderful. We love them. By the way, that's a gift from God as well. Nothing wrong with a passionate feeling. They're beautiful. God created you with that. But that's not love. Love is seeking to do the very best thing for someone else. God has said that there's nothing better, that that the best sex is married sex between a man and a woman. Therefore, if I love her, then I will do my absolute best to give her God's best, which means I'll defend her purity, and I'll help to preserve it for her wedding night instead of selfishly taking it to seize this passionate moment for myself. Does this make sense? Let me summarize the logic. Some of us philosophers, let's make this logical. Love does what is best for the other person. God's best is always what is best. Therefore, doing God's best for another person is what is best. Therefore, there's no such thing as loving sex outside of marriage. It's impossible. 
because God says the best is inside marriage. Therefore, anything outside of marriage is not love. It's only a passionate feeling. Second argument on the it's all about love is this. Marriage is bigger than love. Follow me for a second. I know this really goes against your Nicholas Sparks books. But I'm telling you something. Marriage is bigger than love. Follow me. Marriage is a lifetime commitment, for better or for worse. Marriage is a promise made in front of other people so that you are held accountable to that promise. And marriage is a promise that's endorsed by society because your marriage is actually a building block of society. We live in society. It's not just me and my girl on a deserted island. We actually live and function in community. We, it, not a greater community. We live and function in culture, in society. That's what we're talking about. And my actions actually affect other people. If you want to make a healthy contribution to this society, build a healthy home. This is why marriage needs to be endorsed by society. Marriage between a man and a woman is the basic building block of society because without the marriage of a man and a woman, you can't have procreation. And without the union of a man and a woman, you can't have the lifetime commitment of a husband and a wife that's necessary for the proper education and training up of the next generation. Literally, the health and well-being of society as a whole depends upon the health and well-being of its families. So the greatest act of love for a dating couple is to preserve one another's purity and not violate it. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 asks a vivid question to those who think they can play the game. I love this question. It says, can a man scoop fire in his lap without getting his clothes burned? Obviously, the answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. You can't put a fire in your lap without burning your pants. Two verses later, it goes on. The text continues, verse 29. It says, so is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. You say, well, me and my girlfriend aren't married. So technically, I'm not sleeping with another man's wife. Someday she will be married, and probably not to you, which means you're sleeping with another man's wife, doofus. So until you put a ring on it, and until you publicly stand and you declare your unwavering commitment to that woman until death parts you, And until you sign that paper telling our government that you will be a responsible home builder, you're sleeping with somebody else's wife. And the Bible says that you will not go unpunished. Some may argue, well, wait a second. I've broken this command, and yeah, I feel really bad about it, but I don't know that I really got severely punished for it. I mean, my life's just fine. I had 
I had a few mishaps, but I'm okay. Let me talk about that for a second. This is the same lie that Adam and Eve fell for in the garden. God told them, the moment you eat this fruit, you will surely die. The devil said, oh, you're not really going to die. So they ate the fruit, and what happened? Well, they didn't die. They were both standing next to the tree, just fine, verifying what the devil had said, did it not? Technically, on the surface, it looks like the devil was right. You didn't really die. However, as soon as they ate that fruit, they immediately felt shame, immediately felt fear, Their relationship with one another was immediately severed. Their relationship with God was immediately severed. So much so that when God came to take his walk with them at nighttime, they ran from him. They didn't run to him. I propose to you that just because you're not dead doesn't mean you're fully living. You might have escaped the consequences of a bad night. Thank you, Jesus. However, you've fallen short of God's perfect ideal for you. God had dreams for you, man. He had intentions for you. They're so good, that are so big, that are so awesome. And there's a life that you can have that's only found fully in Christ and engaged with the way he has determined to live life and anything less than that, and you're falling short. And God's ideal for you is so good. He doesn't want you to miss it. And also, these commands, remember, we've talked about this before in this series, these ten commands are given to a culture, they're given to a society as well. As Americans, we tend to read the scripture a lot of times with our very individualistic thinking, but we also sometimes need to set that aside and also read it as a whole. And when you read it as a whole, we need to understand it's pretty clear. As a people, as a culture, since the sexual revolution hit in the 1960s, we have been crumbling apart at the seams. The numbers don't lie. If you don't believe me and you don't believe the Bible, at least believe the numbers. These are just a few. I could spend all day with the statistics. Divorce lawyers will tell you that 60% of divorce cases cite porn addiction as a factor. 35% of all the children living in the USA right now don't have a father at home. It's a third. 54 million unborn children have been aborted and killed since 1973. 54 million. Eight million people are infected with AIDS. 650,000 are dead. The CDC, that's the Center for Disease Control, reports that 14 million new HPV infections every year. That's the human papilloma virus. The CDC also reports 20 million new STDs infections every year, sexually transmitted diseases. 20 million new infections every year. 
50% of those new infections reported are in people under the age of 24. And the CDC says that STDs account for $16 billion a year in medical costs. That's money coming right out of every one of our pockets, by the way. We're all paying for that as a society. Okay, so the numbers don't lie. We might feel more liberated, but we're not. We're destroying ourselves. <laughs> Do you see this? The hookup culture is killing us. It's rotting us from the inside out. Your one night of passion is bigger than just you. Collectively, this behavior is destroying our families. It's destroying our culture. It's destroying our way of life. And the only way to change it is to begin taking personal responsibility for yourself in your own bedroom. And to determine, as Joshua once did all those years ago, stood in front of these people, and I can always imagine the scene, Joshua's pretty much by himself, and he says to his people, as for you, you choose whom you will serve, but as for me and my family, we're going to serve the Lord. And if you call that weird, then call me weird, I'll take it. Change has to start with me. The, the trends have to start turning back somewhere. So let it begin with us. Let it begin with the choices that I make in my bedroom and the choices that you make in your bedroom. God, here's another important point. Listen, God has designed life so that you can choose whatever way that you like. However, you cannot choose the consequences of that way. The consequences are up to God. In the Bible, God says, vengeance is mine. And what that means is God gets the last word. He gets the last word on you and on me. And he has clearly communicated the best way for us to go on this subject. He has clearly laid out his heart. There it is. I, I'm telling you, human race... The best way to go is this way. Choose this way. How will you choose? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. It says this, There must not be even a, a hint of sexual immorality. A hint. That's raising the standard high, isn't it? Not even a hint. You mean not even a joke? Not even a hint. You mean not even a little offhanded? Not even a hint. Ooh. Tells you how serious it is. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. This verse has really spoken to me. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The marriage bed honored by only married people. No, that's not what it says, does it? The marriage bed honored by all. Marriage bed honored by married people. The marriage bed honored by unmarried people. 
what God is doing is he's elevating the marriage bed. He's saying this is a sacred and a holy place. This is a beautiful place. This is a deeply fulfilling place. It's a place that I've designed. It's a place that I've given to you to be used in a, only one context between husband and wife. It's a place that everyone is to recognize and honor and respect. God made it pure. You and I are to keep it pure. Notice the command? Keep it pure, he says. So God makes it, we keep it. Adultery taints the character, it bruises the soul, it twists the mind, and it clouds our perception of others. The sixth command that we talked about three weeks ago, dealing with murder, is about respecting the life of others. The seventh command not to commit adultery, is about respecting the purity of others. Murder is an instant kill. Sexual immorality is a slow kill. It gradually sucks the life out of the soul with every illicit encounter, just a little bit at a time. God is not being prudish when he speaks of your purity He's not some Victorian in a turtleneck telling you to be pure. That's not what he is. Please don't. That's a wrong impression of God. He loves you. He's protecting you. And in the same way that your life has value, your body also has value. Isn't that amazing? This body, this flesh and blood... It, it has value. It's, this is not a piece of meat. This is a temple, the Bible says. It's amazing. He's elevating the value of your flesh and blood body in this command. And so we have one more scripture. How do I keep it pure? How do we keep the marriage bed pure? Romans six nineteen says this, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. Literally, offer your body parts to God for righteous behavior. You know, this verse also tells me that if I have any desire, any plan to be a holy man, or you have a desire to be a holy woman of God, then the way that you treat your body has to be a part of that plan. That they're a package deal. That my spiritual life cannot be separated from my physical life, and my physical life cannot be separated from my spiritual life. The two are intertwined. They're a package deal. Why do we have these appetites? You'd say, well, God, then why are you setting me up for failure like this, God? You want me to be holy, and then you put this Maserati inside my brain, and then you tell me I'm supposed to bridle it. How do I do that, God? That's the beauty of it. Listen, why do I have these appetites? Here's why you have them. It goes with this verse. The reason why you have these appetites is because 
<laughs> okay. Because the control of these appetites leads to holiness. It's part of the training. God's built you with, with the ability to be trained towards holiness. So I'm going to give you these appetites, and I'm going to tell you to control them. I'm going to entrust these appetites to you, and then I'm going to command you to control them. And by controlling them, you as a person become stronger. See, I am not my appetites. I, I'm, I'm not. And so, so by, by telling me to control these appetites, it's actually part of God's plan to discipline me, to develop me, to strengthen my character. Yeah. Um, yep. That wasn't in my notes, and so now I've got to go back. The choice is mine. I, I, can give my, I can give my body parts to impurity. We can do that. And that will lead to our ruin, eventually. Or, I can give my body parts to purity. And Scripture says that that will actually contribute to my holiness. It's amazing. Notice also the hope in this Scripture. This Scripture is full of hope. It's beautiful. Notice I underline the words. Used to offer. That's how you used to do it. How many of you used to do it that way? Can I get an amen? That's used to. That means past tense. That's not who you are anymore. That's, that's not who you are. You used to. But now, in Christ, now you have a choice. You can offer these body parts to Christ. Wow. And just like I used to offer them to impurity, and man, it caused all kinds of problems in my life. It really did. Now I offer them to purity, and God says the outcome, holiness. Wow, you become just like Jesus. The choice is yours. So let me wrap this up with four quick things, okay, quickly. Thank you. I know this has been a tough, tough message. Um, <clears throat> one benefit is a, a, this topic always keeps people's attention, so I know I didn't bore you today. <clears throat> but um, four quick things. Number one is this. Parents, please talk to your children. You have to. I'm, I'm telling you, you have to. You can say, well, you've never been that strong before. I'm telling you, you have to. And you have to do it today. You, you have to do it before they turn, before they go to school, before kindergarten. You say, but there are only five. Yes, you have to. Let me tell you something. Our culture is talking to your children. And if you don't talk to them, you're allowing our culture to influence their thoughts on this subject. Our culture doesn't care that your kid's only five. Right? And interesting, you're like, oh, but there's only five. They're so little. Culture doesn't care how old your kid is. It's influencing your child. 
you must have this conversation sooner than later. You will not have a complete conversation with a five-year-old on this subject. So let me take the pressure off. You don't have to whip out the encyclopedia and cover all of the details in one conversation over an ice cream cone. That's not what I'm saying. But you do have to open up the conversation and begin it with your child. It has to be done. First one. Second one is this. Encouragement. I know a lot of us in this room have blown it here. Listen, you can't change where you've been, but you can change where you're going. Please hear the good news today. You can start today. We've all um, made mistakes. Chances are good. I'm going to just guess, statistically speaking, statistically speaking, probably 90% or higher of the people in this room have committed adultery, your pastor included. We've been there. I can't change where I've been, but I can change where I'm going. I can take this word of God and I can say, God, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry, God, I, I missed your ideal. I did. But I'm so thankful that in Christ, all things are new. I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for the way that God takes our, our, our dirt and our, our grime and our mistakes and somehow he, he, he does something with it. It makes it beautiful somehow. I'm so thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. So please hear that today. You can't change where you've been, but you can change where you're going. And then third, mark your calendar on September 21st. We're going to be holding a seminar right here. It's a Friday night, September 21st. We've assembled a team of people. We don't really have a title for it yet. Trying to think of some clever title, but basically it's on sex and sexuality in the new millennium. We want to equip you to be able to answer some of the issues, some of the things that are being thrown at us all the time these days. So mark your calendar, September 21st. We've assembled a dream team of teachers. It's going to be awesome. You don't want to miss it. Invite a friend. And then fourth, many of us are married. I just want to give this specifically to the married couples for a moment. Um, You know, many of us as married couples, we didn't do it the right way. I want to encourage you today to go home and be alone for a moment, as long as you can. And first of all, ask one another for forgiveness, because you took God's best from each other. And just simply ask one another, just ask one another for forgiveness. And, and then I urge you to pray together for your family and for your home and ask God for wisdom and courage to build a home that honors him in every way. And ask God to protect your family and protect your children. And, and vow together that you're, that you're going to deal with this subject in your home. That this is not going to be a taboo subject in your home. But that it's going to be one that we will deal with graciously, honestly, biblically. And, uh, and as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then um, I just want to close in prayer. I lead us to close in prayer. Um, 
just, it's a very simple prayer. And it's simply this. I'm going to tell you the prayer and then lead us in praying it together. The prayer is simply, God, I've broken the seventh commandment. Please forgive me. Please restore me. Give me the strength to live according to your will from this day forward. Amen. Simple. Would you bow your head and pray with me this morning? God, I have broken the seventh commandment. I ask you to please forgive me. And I ask you, Lord, to give me strength to live for you, to live the way that you intended from this day forward. Lord, we look around us and we see our culture that is crumbling at the seams and the enemy is attacking us in this very area. Lord, please, I pray that we would hold up a standard in the way that we live that is beautiful, shining, glorious, attractive. Lord, that as a church, we're not known for the stuff that we're against. No, 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 no. But rather, by our lives, we're known for the beautiful things that we are. Lord, I pray that my marriage becomes an example to my neighborhood and my family and friends and all those around me. They say, wow, I want that. Lord, make our marriages enviable, I pray. May they be enviable by all who see them. Lord, and and may the testimony be glory to God. Great things he's doing in my marriage and my home and my family. So, Lord, that's our prayer today. And we ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.